as the video uh, focused our minds and thoughts on today's particular value that we are looking at. We've been going through the seven different core values of our church, kind of the DNA. Uh, Today we're looking at that value that goes along with being the church and being deployed and going out as the church. Our text in Scripture focuses on this in Matthew chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Also, its text is written there in your bulletin as well. Listen as I read God's Word. And Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into into his harvest field. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there with your disciples, you ministered and equipped each one of them, but you also ministered to the crowds and to the masses and to individuals along the way as you journeyed and walked from town to town to village to village. And you helped us understand what is valuable in this life. You helped us understand and see and know what is on your heart, even as you were here among us. Father, give us your heart. Give us your perspective not just on ourselves or on our church, but on this world, the people that live in the world with us. Give us your heart, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, until about two weeks ago, I, and probably you, had never heard of Felix Bumgardner. Does anybody know who Felix Bumgardner is? Okay. In case you missed it, he was the professional daredevil stunt guy that went up 24 miles into the atmosphere and just jumped. Of course, the whole suit, the whole thing, it was amazing. And as he fell towards the earth at 834 miles an hour, he finally, after going into an uncontrollable spin pulled his chute, and then landed on his feet celebrating an incredible leap that had never been done before. It really was amazing to watch and just to see somebody do that as Felix Bumgarner did. But you know what pulled him all the way down at 834 miles an hour? I think I'm not exactly a scientist and know all the, the physics, but of course eventually there's the gravitational pull. We understand what that is, that gravity pulls us against the earth constantly, and we always are being pulled by that gravitational pull. Even as we stand, as you sit, as you lie down, wherever you are, you're being pulled. There's a a gravitational, as in a sense, pull, I believe, upon us spiritually. And it usually comes from our heart. It's kind of a tendency towards sometimes self-preservation spiritually, or looking after for number one. Spiritually, we often, even as believers, 
we tend towards, whether it be individually, but certainly the church as a corporate gathering of believers, as a body of believers together, we tend towards looking inward. And the challenge for us as the church is to not just look at one another's needs, though that is very important, to not just look at our own needs and desires, though those are important as well, but to look outwardly, to go against that pull, that tendency we have, all of us, to not consider others' needs, others around us, those especially outside of our church body, those outside that do not know and have a relationship with Christ themselves. And so our passage, Jesus gives us, I think, more of a perspective on the need for us to look outside of just what we have in the church. Last week, we looked at what it meant to be a community of God's people, ministering and serving and loving one another. And that's very important as a core value for our church. But as important, equally important, we have to continue to prioritize and place in front of our eyes the need and the, the purpose for how God has blessed us as a community to reach others by sharing the good news of God's grace, by reaching out to those around us. Our passage as Jesus is going through the towns and villages, first we see our opportunity as we see the account of Christ with the disciples and with the crowds. Our opportunity as Jesus describes there in this passage is very great. The opportunity for what this harvest field Jesus speaks about, our opportunity is very great. Jesus himself says, as the disciples were there, the harvest is plentiful. There's no question. The harvest is tremendous. The opportunity, Jesus is saying, is great. The opportunity for us, for any church, for any believer towards their environment in this world is immense. It's vast. The opportunity for the gospel to be spread is truly plentiful. Notice Jesus does not say that the soil is plentiful or that the seeds are plentiful being scattered amongst the soil, uh, sowing the seeds for the gospel to take uh, root, but he says the actual harvest is plentiful. It is a tremendous opportunity. And of course, who is the harvest? Except we know the harvest are all those who are yet in the family of God. All those who are not yet in God's family, who do not know him with a personal relationship. They are all there. God is using and calling us to that harvest. Those who have yet embraced the good news of God's grace. One thing is for certain as far as our daily walk with the Lord. The opportunity for the harvest, for us to go out and spread the good news, is not for want. There is never a lack of opportunity. Every day that you go out and you experience whatever it is you experience from work to relationships to your neighborhood, to wherever you go in the community, the opportunity wherever you are and wherever you go will always be great. 
You will not have a day that you'll go out in the community and you will only speak with those who truly know Christ. If you are engaging many people in your world, whether it be the checkout person at Walmart or the grocery store, or you go to the doctor and the person helping you fill out the forms, or wherever you are, there's always going to be opportunity to be a light of the, of the hands and feet of Christ, to be the grace, the love, to share that with someone who is around you. Opportunity is so great. But you know, what's, what, what, thinking about the harvest being so ripe, so ready, what's one reason that Jesus gives us why the harvest is so plentiful? Why does Jesus say in the text that the harvest is so plentiful? Well, have you ever thought, as he says in verse 36, <clears throat> why it is so plentiful? In Jesus' day, Maybe you've heard of this group called the Pharisees. There was the religious leaders, those who taught and sought to keep, especially in a public manner, so public manner, so everyone would see their life and how they lived, the law of God. They kept the law as perfectly as possibly anyone could try to keep the law of God. Of course, they didn't want to show if they ever failed or had flaws. And so they, they put this persona before everyone around them as very as religiosity, as being very good, very moral. And they sought to fulfill the law of God with everything that they had. These were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But you know what? They just didn't live that life for themselves. They told others they must do the same. If they were going to be religious they had to take the same approach in their obedience to God, the one true God. They sought, in a sense, many times, to spiritually browbeat those in the community where Jesus lived and where he moved and had his ministry, wherever he went, when the Pharisees or the Sadducees, when those who were there, they would literally take the law of God and use it in a sense, almost as a weapon against those who were seeking to have a relationship with God. They kept the rules, and they sought to be very strict with anyone who would, who would express a desire to worship the one true God. Matthew chapter 23, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You see, they placed a burden of obedience with no heart and with no understanding of God's forgiveness and grace upon the backs of those that they taught and sought to lead. You know, we can possibly do the same to those who are not in our midst in the church. Those that are outside the church, as we leave this place, as we go out, we can sometimes present that kind of a persona, maybe not even realizing it to those around us. I would say the average unchurched person in Cobb County 
in living in the suburbs of northwest Atlanta, or even many church people living in the suburbs of northwest Atlanta, if they even do believe in God, probably also believe they have to be a really good person in order for God to accept them when they die. Would you agree? I talk to all kinds of people that have that perspective. They believe that when they die, the main thing, that most important thing, is that they have been a good enough person while living on this earth, however many years they've been given, so that at the moment of death, they, when presented with the presence of God himself, will have, in a sense, done enough good to outweigh the bad in their life, and God will accept them and say, enter into heaven, into my rest. And that's what many people believe is the way that we have a relationship with God. And often people think that way and believe that way, not just because it's kind of our tendency in our human nature to kind of go down that road, but also I do believe the church has not revealed the grace of the gospel in a clear enough way in our own lives. But instead, sometimes we present to people a religious idea that goes back even to the first century Pharisees. We have to live our lives in the freedom of God's grace and not present kind of a rules-based religion of how we relate to the God that has given us his grace and has loved us with his mercy. We have to share the good news. That's what makes the news so good is because we aren't capable of doing enough good. We never were and we never will be, but yet God receives us and accepts us because of his son's perfect obedience. And we receive that perfect obedience rather than trying to come up with our own. The opportunity is great. Sharing the grace and mercy of the cross with those outside and those that are around our church who do not have that relationship with Christ. It is powerful and it certainly is plentiful. But also the resources are few. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. The workers are few. You know, church history, if you ever studied it, whether in depth or just in a cursory fashion, just looking over church history, you'll see that it's shown the church has often existed mostly on limited resources compared to the world in which it exists. The church throughout the ages, different times certainly, especially when the government was behind the church, there was a difference in maybe resources, but many times and often the church has lived with limited resources in many ways, not necessarily spiritually, but temporally speaking. And resources are often few. There are many reasons why the workers that Jesus describes are few. Have you thought about why are there few workers in the harvest field? Many reasons. Some, we would probably agree, are even issues in our own life, distractions in our life. We get distracted rather than staying focused on what Jesus has called us to. Maybe getting, being busy building our own kingdoms and what we're seeking to do in this world 
trying to do things that we believe we should be about with our time and our resources and our energy rather than seeking what is on the heart of Christ and his kingdom. Sometimes we struggle with just being indifferent, if we're honest. Sometimes we have an apathy towards those who aren't part of the body of Christ. And we tend not to necessarily work against them, but just kind of avoid those people or those situations in our life. And we seek to much more rather spend time with brothers and sisters in the family of God, rather than consider the immense harvest and opportunity that's around us every single day. There are many reasons why the workers are few. All these are reasons, but God knew those reasons even when he sent Jesus. Those were reasons even 2,000 years ago, and they've always been reasons plus others, but God knew that when he sent Christ. He knew that would be the case. So what did he do? He employed a specific strategy, calling a few, therefore equipping and discipling them to be deployed to reach the harvest. Taking a few and reaching the many. Matthew 28, you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. And therefore, Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, though there are few that Christ has called, he has called them and discipled us, and we are called to disciple one another, that we would then be deployed to reach all of our relationships. That we would go out and we would seek to engage a lost world rather than just engaging the church itself. So often we have just enough time in our busy seven-day-week schedules to engage maybe a few people in church. But we fail to leave that discretionary time to, alongside of the world we live in, seek to reach those who don't have the gospel themselves, who do not understand what it means to know Christ in their own life. So the opportunity is great. Though the workers are few, there is an immense, wonderful harvest field that we are called to reach. So what is our response? The opportunity is clear, but what's our response? Well, as Jesus has said to the disciples, we must first compassionately engage others who are in need. We're called to compassionately engage others in need. Verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, it says, teaching in their synagogues. He went through all the towns and villages. See, Jesus just, did, just uh, he did not live in one town, just stay in one small little village. He traveled constantly, going throughout the villages and the towns, engaging others in relationship speaking with them, getting to know them, hearing their stories, listening, talking with them. That's what he did each and every day in his life. He traveled and spent time with those in the villages and towns in his communities. He made sure that he was among those who needed the gospel. He was among them. He wasn't just a citizen there in Jerusalem. He was among them in a way where he could engage them. If I were to ask you to write down on the back of your bulletin right now, 
all the names of those who came to your mind who, from your perspective, do not have a relationship with Christ. And you have a close friendship with them. How many names would you write down? Close friends of yours that you regularly are engaged with that those same people do not have a relationship with the Lord that you know of, that, that they've ever spoken of, and that your perception is. None of us really know anyone's relationship with Christ, of course, but as far as you could discern. Would you write down a hundred names? Fifty? Twenty names? Ten? Would you write down five? Could you write down two? Could you write even one name down? I don't know where you are, but think about how many names you could write down right now. And if it's not very many, if it's in the single digits, if it's even in the low single digits, maybe it's time to reevaluate, to consider opportunity that is so great in the harvest field that Christ has given us. We have to compassionately engage others who are in need. How much of your life do unbelievers really see? They see what you want them to see, the good person, the person that looks good, acts right, is right. But do unbelievers ever see you when you're not at your best? Do unbelievers really engage your life and see you when you mess up, when you've really messed up? when you feel embarrassed or ashamed or do they see that in your life you know that's not a bad thing as christians we're not supposed to be about just putting on a perfect picture for all of the lost to see in our lives we're called to live our lives before the nations and whatever and however we live we live in the grace of god and his forgiveness and as they see the things in your life that are a blessing, but also the things in your life that are a struggle, they'll see how you walk in both of those situations. And as they see how you walk, they'll see Christ. And he'll be magnified even more greatly because he will be brighter against the backdrop of your flaws and your failures and your struggles. Christ will be even greater. He'll become even more beautiful to them. And his love and forgiveness that you will display to them as you experience that when you struggle, they'll see that. And that, if Christ is moving in their heart, will be an attraction for them. It will be attractive to those around you. It won't be a turnoff. And it won't necessarily be something they can use against you as a Christian if you're afraid of that. It actually will be something God would use to make it attractive to them to want to have what is in your heart compassionately engaging others in need you know it's an act of our faith to practice to live our life before the nations we should be expecting for them to oversee and overhear our conversations you know in a sense though this goes against our culture doesn't it why because we're all about privatization about being private in our life we want to have our space and have our world private and everything that we desire to be just 
to ourselves or to a very few who really know us. And so we have to work against that and go against that kind of a mentality. We can't privatize our faith. It must be lived out before the nations. It must be lived out before a lost and dying world. There is no other option that Christ has given us. This is what he has called us to. We're called to be Christians that engage our culture, not retreat from it, not isolate ourselves from it, or try to create an alternative Christian subculture where we can just stay in that nice subculture. We are called to engage this world that Christ and the Lord has placed us in. We cannot place this responsibility of reaching our world only on the shoulders of professional clergy, pastors, or missionaries. That's certainly not just their responsibility. Christ has called all of us as his disciples to this opportunity. This summer I read a book by David Platt called Radical. We've been reading it as a staff, and David Platt says this, The plan of Christ is not dependent on having the right programs or hiring the right professionals, but on being and building the right people, which is a community of people who realize that we are all enabled and equipped to carry out the purpose of God for our lives. We are all equipped and if we're not are we seeking to be equipped we need to be to carry out the purpose of God for our life what is that purpose that we've been called to worship and glorify him and to spread the good news of the gospel to all the ends of the earth <clears throat> you know if you put side by side your life against those in the world who do not know Christ and their life if our lives were put up side by side, which if you just went down our street, you could do that, house to house, believers and unbelievers living in the same suburban neighborhoods. If we did that, those of us in the church would probably look just like those outside the church. Similar cars, similar family activities, similar house, similar this, similar that. You just couldn't, by just looking at the people out in their yard, one neighbor against another, know the difference. We look very similar. But sometimes, if we look a little deeper, there isn't as much of a difference in how we go about living our lives and the priorities that we have. Sometimes we just, as Christians, try to lay a Christian veneer over the activities that we really want to be doing in our life, the things that are most valuable and important to us. And we kind of ask God to bless what we want to go do and how we want to go about building our own little kingdoms. And that's not what God's purpose is for our life. That's not what he's called us to, to be about just putting a Christian veneer on our own kingdom pursuits. He's not called us to that. So what must make us different is the radical nature of our faith, the radical nature of our repentance, and understanding how our affections must rest on his purposes, the eternal things, that really matter. And those things are eternal. There are only two things, if you think about it, that will last for eternity. God's Word tells us there are only two things that will ever last forever. God's Word and the soul of man.
Those are the only two things. That means everything else takes second place. There's nothing more important than the Word of God and the souls of people. There's nothing more important. And yet, how much time do we spend caring and engaging with compassion those two things? How much time do we really spend? It's just a question we have to ask. Jesus, in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, it says he had compassion on them. You know, you cannot disconnect verses 37 and 38 when he's told to the disciples about the harvest being plentiful. You can't disconnect it from verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. The workers will only truly and sacrificially labor in the harvest field of verses 37 and 38 if they are moved by grace and motivated by Jesus' compassion and love for them first. Do you understand how compassionately you've been loved by Jesus in your own life? You will not be motivated and have a desire to move towards others unless you first have embraced that. Unless you realize how deep that goes, how immense that compassion for you is. You cannot sacrifice your time and attention, your money and your effort and everything that is yours. You cannot sacrifice those things unless you first have experienced that level of compassion and forgiveness yourself. It just can't happen. But if you do experience it, then truly experience what I'm saying, you will know there is nothing more important than sharing that same experience with someone else who has yet in their life to experience it. If we're not moved by the love of Christ compelling us towards people that are hopeless and lost, then we have to question do I even know what that's like for me? We have to question our heart about this. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who, should live, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Should no longer live for ourselves. That's what Christ's love does. It compels you and me to no longer live for ourselves. If we're living for ourselves, we have not understood what should compel us. We just haven't. Christ has loved us with an all-compelling love. You know, you never know where people are struggling and where they are when you talk to them on any given day. You just don't know what they're going through. Sometimes in the office, someone is, seems like they're having a bad day and come to find out maybe through the office grapevine that they lost their spouse the day before or they had a child get cancer or something. You just don't know what someone's going through when you're interacting with them throughout your day and your week. About five years ago, we lived in a different neighborhood than we do now. And a couple of houses up, there was a couple, uh, basically almost empty nesters, older children that were out of the house, married and in college and so forth. 
And over the years, we were there about nine years in the neighborhood, and over the years I kind of saw and had a relationship with them, our family did, and the husband particularly, I could see his life just kind of slowly unraveling a little bit here and there. Always struggling and keeping a job, and, and the relationship with his spouse was always, it seemed to be, a struggle. And so one, one particular weekend I was mowing my yard and it was late and, you know, I try to mow the yard when it's, when it's late because it's cooler in the evening and in the summertime and I was just trying to get it done. And so he was strolling down the sidewalk and he kind of stopped and I could tell he wanted to talk. I wanted to get my yard mowed. But I could just kind of tell, so I turned the mower off and started talking with him. And he shared some things and I could tell that he had definitely been busy with the, the, the alcohol that evening. And we just talked, and I listened for a little bit. Not that long, but just for a while. And I just knew that he was, seemed, seemed to be in a really bad place. Well, I shared a little bit with him, but not too much, not too clearly the gospel. About six months later or so, they ended up moving out of a neighborhood and going their past and ended up getting a divorce. And then several months after that, I hear that he took his life. He was in despair. He was hopeless. Put a gun to his head. You never know the opportunities that God will give you. Someone who really is despairing that day, who really needs to hear the news that you know and you have, you can share with them. Every day, God brings people into our life in his providence that we have opportunities to share with. We have to seek to engage them with compassion. But also, we have to seek to meet their physical needs. Verse 35, Jesus went and it said, he went about preaching the good news and healing every disease and sickness healing every disease and sickness. Jesus got messy. Bottom line, he got messy. He was willing to get involved, not just observe and write a check for, but himself to get involved, to engage his world. He was willing to do that. He didn't sit back in the synagogue and mail a mass marketing campaign inviting people to attend one of his amazing sermons entitled Bethlehem or, Bu or Buddha, you choose. He didn't do that. He went out and he engaged them. He spent time talking and listening and seeing their brokenness. Jesus did what none of the religious people in his day would do. He got messy. He got involved. He allowed himself to become directly involved with those in need. You know, when God brings someone into our life with a real need... Maybe it's a meal we offer. Or maybe they need some financial help. Or maybe they need their house cleaned. Maybe their yard mowed. Maybe something fixed around their house because they don't know how to do it and they don't have the means to get it done. Something very simple or practical. Something very real. Something that we can help in some way. That's the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ. We must be willing to reach out to them. Meeting people with the good news of truth spiritually is absolutely what God desires. But he also calls us to meet their physical needs. The needs that they have just like we do. It's a both and. 
Jesus also told the disciples to seek people's spiritual needs, not just their physical needs. He showed that to them. Verse 35, not only did he heal and did he go about healing every disease and sickness, but he also spent time telling them the good news to meet their spiritual need. You know, as believers, we have to be eager to engage our world, especially unbelievers, with intelligence, warmth, respect, compassion, and and we're willing to do so rather than to dismiss those who have a different conviction than we do or a different perspective on spiritual matters. We must be willing to engage them. And we, we should seek to be creative on how we share the love of Christ with others. Be creative engaging the world around us and not just limit ourselves to a program in the church or a particular aspect of what the church is doing. We are the church, as that video called for us to. We are the church. Wherever we go, the church is going because we are the church. And to get outside of the box and to engage the world around us, most importantly, we must always remember what it is like not to believe. Do you remember what it's like when you weren't a believer in your life? What that is like, we must remember those those times, that understanding, or what it's like for those who do not have Christ in their life. Our elder prayed for Jody Stancil in Cartersville. I talked to Jody this week on the phone, and he said, hey, Mike, I just want you to know, I was up in Cartersville, just spent the day praying and walking around the downtown area of Cartersville, just wanting to see what God was doing in the city that he's calling our family to begin this new work. And he told me he was walking in downtown, and as he was out there on the sidewalk outside of this office building, he saw four women standing there bawling, crying, almost uncontrollably. He had a choice. I'm going to go as far away from that situation as possible. Four women crying, I don't want to get near that. Or he can move towards them. What do you think Jody did? He ran. No, he didn't. I'm sorry. He didn't run. He walked up to them and said, I'm sorry, I can't help but notice that you all seem certainly upset. Is everything okay? Um, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, and I'm, <clears throat> I'm seeking to maybe start a new church in the area, but I just saw you all so upset. And they shared with him, they had just found out that the boss, there, it was a hospice, uh, a hospice care place, Uh, It was more the business office area of the hospice care in Cartersville. But their boss, they had just found out um, that his daughter had just hung herself of this hospice center. And they were just broken. And so he just said, well, can I just pray for you right now? So he just prayed for them and just offered any support right there in the moment. Never met them. May never meet them again. But yet... It was an opportunity, and he didn't pass it up. He didn't run away from it. He went into it headfirst. When we have those things arise, do we go into them headfirst? We have to. Not just if you're a pastor. Pastors sometimes don't go into things headfirst, trust me. As believers, we're called to move towards those who are hurting, who need spiritual truth, who need their needs met physically and spiritually. But the last truth that Jesus shared with them in our passage, we see in verse 38. 
After he's told the disciples that the harvest was plentiful, he says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. You know, the disciples probably expected Jesus to say something like, Let me explain how important it is for you to go out and now recruit all the workers to join the effort with you in the harvest field. In fact, that's what the church most often does today, doesn't it? We look to get bigger, more programs, more facilities, and we want to get as many people gathered as possible, and yet we, we don't see the deployment happening compared to the numbers that are gathered in the walls of our churches. But in verse 38, Jesus said, Ask the Lord to send out workers into his harvest field. Who sends the workers into the harvest field? The Lord sends the workers into the harvest field. You and I don't send workers. The Lord sends by his spirit. He sends the workers into his harvest field. Notice whose field it is. It says it's his field. It's not our field. It's his harvest field. He knows what kind of workers he needs. He knows the landscape of the harvest field better than we ever could. You know, it's interesting Prayer, asking the Lord of the harvest, prayer, and evangelism are inseparable. They have to go together. You can't just go seek to spread the gospel and never talk with the Lord of the harvest about it in your own strength. And we certainly, though we should be praying about the harvest field, need not just only pray, but also engage and go. They're inseparable if you show me someone who really is from the heart, me, moving towards those who are lost, I guarantee you more than likely their prayer life is vitally active and engaged in that process. They both go hand in hand. Evangelism is God-centered, not man-centered, if you think about it. Spreading the gospel is really about God being the center of that process, not about us being the center of that process. Though man is the object of the gospel, he is not the origin, he is not the source, and he is not the power in which it takes place. Though he is the object of the gospel of good news. So what is going to help us get the right perspective on reaching out to the lost world? With my life, with your life, what's going to help us? Again, Platt writes in his book, Radical all my life, I have completely disconnected God's blessings from God's purpose. And now I realize what I had never seen. God has blessed me to show his love. God has blessed me to show his mercy and grace. That is why God has given me income and education and resources. God saves me so that the nations will know him. He blesses me so that all the earth will see his glory. It's pretty convicting, isn't it? Why does God bless you? Why have you been blessed with education, affluence, resources, health, whatever blessing you can name in your life? Why? Just so you can have it? Just so I can have it for myself? When I speak about this, I'm not speaking at you, I'm speaking about me. It's so that we can take that blessing and fulfill 
the purposes of sharing it with others, to, empl to employ it, to use it, to invest it. And the two things that I said will only last for eternity, the word of God and the souls of men. That's why you've been blessed. We haven't been blessed for ourselves. That's the reality of it. We've been blessed for the nations. We've been blessed so that all others who have not heard or seen or experienced the grace of Christ would do so if God so orders. We would be employed to do that. When we can understand that our blessings are in our life for that purpose, and we can connect that, it will change us in a radical way. It really will. It will change your life to think of that's why you've been blessed. It will move you because you understand what that means spiritually. Understanding that God has blessed you and me with a purpose and not just for our enjoyment alone is how we will be outwardly facing as a church all the time, whether we're together or out away from each other. And God would do that.